0: Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of Creator Science. We have a fun new episode here for you today. I'm speaking with my friend Kieran Drew. Kieran has a newsletter called Digital Freedom with nearly 30,000 subscribers. He also has more than 175,000 followers on Twitter, which is potentially where you have heard of Kieran. Kieran is an ex-dentist who quit dentistry to learn writing, and now that is what he is teaching others as well. And recently, Kieran launched a new course called High Impact Writing. I had a front row seat to that course launch on Twitter and from his newsletter, and boy, oh boy, did it go well. I will let him tell you just how well that course launch went.
1: The launch was uh, four days long. There are 500 students, give or take, maybe like three or four people. And we made uh, $142,000. I can't remember the exact to the dollar, but it was around there.
0: Four days, 500 students, $142,000 at the launch of that course. Now, to be honest with you, I've never had a launch anywhere near that successful. And so I wanted to learn from Kieran just as much as I wanted to share with you what he learned in this process. So in this episode, we are getting into the weeds. We are talking all about the process for creating and launching this course. We talk about what he would do differently if he were to do it again, and all of the other lessons that he learned in launching high-impact writing. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. As you listen, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Klaus. I'm getting more active on Instagram, so find me over there if you haven't already. Just tag me, say hello, let me know that you're listening, and now let's talk with Kiernan.
1: In terms of the price point, we launched the main course at 297. A couple of days before, we added tiered pricing. Um, yeah, I'm a huge fan of Nathan Barry. I know you are too. And uh, I just remember him saying it a while ago. And I was like, fuck, you're missing something here. So I added that on, which was a thousand bucks. And what that was was just the course and a call with me. Uh, that grossed maybe an extra 10K. And then what we did was, I released my first product a year ago, 12 months before this one. So that was an upsell, you know, one click offer sort of thing. And and that gross made me another 8,000 or so. So, you know, small touches around it, but kind of adds up over time. Yeah. So uh, retail price was 250. And so the upsell was basically, you know, this is a one-time offer. You can get it for whatever, 63% off, which was around $98, I think.
0: Uh, I'm already loving this so much because people don't talk about this. And I love geeking out about numbers. I love this type of thing, like really yeah. breaking down exactly what's going on here. We do this type of thing in the lab all the time, but it's fun to do this in in a public forum. So this is the second product launch. How would you compare it to your experience with that first product launch, the, the original $250 course?
1: How would I compare it? I mean, it's like... Um... It's kind of like going to like a kid's soccer game for number one versus uh, like a professional <laughs> match. Uh, it was absolutely wild. I mean, the, the first product was, I had, I had no clue what I was doing. And I mean, I still have no clue what I'm doing, but um, a little bit further along that cluelessness. But I mean, the first one was uh, 5K in five days. And yeah, just this one was completely unexpected in terms of how it went, particularly on the last day which was, I think it was like 75k on the final day alone. Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, to, to be honest, mate, like I'll tell you a quick story. So I try not to get my hopes up about these things, but I'd started speaking to uh, entrepreneurs who were like, you know, Twitter creators, they should be getting six figure launches. And I was aiming for 30k this time around. And uh, so there's people like Grandma Hippie. And uh, I kind of got my hopes up a little bit, which is like my rule number one for creating. And anyway, so when I click launch, I, you know, send that email the second time round, I was like, don't get your hopes up, but you know, we're going to go to the pub in two hours, me and my girlfriend and celebrate this influx of sales. And I think we made eight sales in the first two and a half hours. And I could just watch, and man, I worked pretty hard for this one. I could just watch three months of effort. Like I was like, something is seriously wrong in my funnel somewhere. Like, I mean, maybe I got like a spelling mistake at the start of the copy, but I think this social proof flywheel, Really started to kick in around day two, day three. And so the final day, man, when I woke up, uh, the final two hours of the launch, I, pff,
0: mind blowing. And for context for folks, you're, you're saying Twitter creators, you have about 168,000 followers on Twitter at the time of writing this email list is how big? 22,000. 22,000. 22, so yeah. significant on both fronts. Do you have any yeah. idea like attribution percentage that came from email versus Twitter?
1: You're going to hate me, man. I don't. I wish I could. Yeah, like I'm sure there is a way to do it. But um, usually my rule is I just don't sell on Twitter so that I know precisely what's going on through email and I can just treat it as top of funnel. But flagship product, I thought this time, let's just build hype around it on social. And uh, so I I can't actually track what
0: it is. You've You've been using the word we a lot. It was in, we did this, we did a four day course this time. Is, is there an actual we or are you just using the royal we to refer to like the company
1: well I'm British so it's the Royal we <laughs> I'm really good at it uh, <laughs> uh, me and my girlfriend so my girlfriend actually um, she became a partner in the business in in January so she quit a nine to five because like it was just crazy busy and so she handled all the design stuff very, very helpful in like operations because I my organization skills are awful uh, so yeah it was, a, it was a very very big joint effort this time around which is
0: brilliant how long did you Prep for this. Like, I want to talk about what led up to the launch. You know, you said the the launch was four days. I want to get a sense for what led up to that four day period that allowed those four days to be such a success.
1: I'm not a launch expert at all. Obviously, it's the second launch I've done, but it did go really well. And I think the thing that helped the most, mate, was. It wasn't, you know, the two weeks before, but maybe even the entire year before. Because one thing that I prioritized with my brand is that I have been trying to over-deliver every opportunity. So we've created eight free video courses, and I feel like that free content almost proved our credibility in terms of, you know, it, it, this guy's worth investing in because uh, people only buy, right, when when they have a problem to solve and when they trust you. And so I feel like that trust was the long game. We, we built quite a nice brand over time. In terms of the actual product. So I started advertising it in, in, in January. So it's about four or five months before I hadn't built it. I didn't know the name. I'm just a very big fan of public accountability to start talking about something to make it happen. But what happened, Jane, uh, I think you actually wrote about this about con- consistency being a gift and a curse, right? I have very rarely not posted two threads a week in my newsletter and what happened mate, was like after about two months, <laughs> high impact writing still didn't have a name, still hadn't been written. And so around February, May time, uh, March time, it was all in. So I stopped writing Twitter content. I just repurposed old stuff. I actually stopped my whole newsletter. And that was terrifying, man, because that was the first time I tried to make like an asymmetrical bet as opposed to that, like consistent grind fest. So the real work probably started about three, three to one months prior.
0: And that looked like actually writing the course, filming the course. Yeah, so in terms of building the course, I originally wrote it straight onto slides as
1: in, you know, this is how it's going to look. And it just came out so waffly. Like it just wasn't concise enough. I tried to skip that writing stage, which is so stupid for me because, you know, writing is the core of everything. So I had to throw it away. I ended up rewriting it maybe like three, four times. And by the end of it, mate, you know, I wrote it on computer, still too waffly. I thought, you know what? Let's write it out by hand, because that really forces you to be concise. Wow! Then we turned it into slides, which my girlfriend did, she's great at designing. Because what I was trying to do, man, was have this like, aha moment every five, 10 minutes. And quite a lot of that is the delivery, you know, these like, I call them sexy final sentences, which you can just really summarize your points. So the writing bit was probably the bulk of it. And then there was the whole marketing around it afterwards.
0: Yeah, I, I've gotten in this flow now where if I'm creating something that's going to live on slides, my my flow is I basically write it out in bullet point format in a page. And this is true for presentations. It's also true for the courses I make. Like for courses, I, I go into Notion, I make a table database, and then I start just like dropping all the ideas I have in terms of like learning objectives or questions. Sometimes they're kind of one of the same. So like for the... Community building course I had it's like launching with email launching with Twitter uh, pricing your your membership and then I'll order those things and then each of those line items in the notion database can be opened up into a page and that's where I do like the bullet point structure those become slides and that becomes recorded but there's a lot of steps in there (laughs) Mm. (laughs) like the actual like writing and formatting of courses and I learned a ton from LinkedIn when I worked with them at LinkedIn learning they acquired um Uh, lynda.com a few years ago that's what linkedin learning where it came from and i learned a ton about them in terms of structuring learning content around learning objectives for each video they were very strict like every video lesson should have its own discrete learning objective that you can phrase as by the end of this video the course that the student will be able to and then it's like verb there's like this thing called bloom's taxonomy verbs and it's stuff that's like six different columns, knowledge, understand, apply, analyze, evaluate, create. And they they said, you should be able to pick one word from each of these columns. By the end of this lesson, the student should be able to solve this type of problem or relate this type of thing to this type of thing or defend this type of thing. So it's it's really interesting how deep you can go on learning objectives. How did you think about that in what became a lesson versus a module? How did you go about structure?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I might have heard you talk about this before. So there was back in my head that every slide, every lesson has to have a, the student gets this benefit from the thing. And you kind of extrapolate that upwards, right? So it's per lesson, per module, per course. The thing that I struggled with a lot was what stays in and what goes out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, when I wrote the, the final draft, I actually ended up deleting maybe another 40 percent and that was quite brutal, but it was like it's all actually just bonuses now, right? Or it's coming like unexpected bonuses stuff I wanted to put in. But but for the most part, mate, I thought about so for each lesson, it either had to dispel a big myth or uh, hit home a you know a, a firm belief of mine. So the big myth was always a great positioning because it was always like most people tell you to write platitudes to grow. But actually, if you look at my uh, story tweet format, storytelling will get five times the amount of impression to profile visit ratio. So here's how you write a story tweet. And then we dive into it. And the feedback has been brilliant on that side of things where people are like, I feel like you're opening my eyes on stuff. But I do have a little bone to pick with you, mate, because one thing I love about you is your um, commitment to quality. I think it really shines through, and. My first product was just scrappy, put together, no planning, all this sort of stuff. And so this time around, obviously a lot of work going into it. And I sent you a message about six weeks before being like, hey man, you sound great. Like what, 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 a, what, mic are you using? So you sent me the mic. And what I didn't realize about these mics are that they have to be quite close to your mouth. Oh yeah. And so yeah. Uh, I've filmed uh, 64 lessons and uh, <laughs> audio is too quiet. Uh, <laughs> ah,
0: yeah, but you can boost yeah. that
1: you
2: can fix that
1: it's all all getting sorted now for the relaunch. but I was just like I got one email and then you know one of my favorite rules about the internet is like if one customer is saying it 10 customers are thinking it Uh, And I don't know why I didn't just listen to it myself on video (laughs) three. (laughs) So thank you for that, mate. Uh, But I do sound nice. I just need to crank it up a little bit.
0: Yeah. I mean, also like hire an audio engineer. People ask me all the time, like, what microphone do you use? It sounds so good on the podcast. I'm like, well, I'll tell you the microphone. It's a Rode Podcaster USB microphone, which you have right here, which I didn't even know they still made. Uh, It's great because of the audio profile that comes through. But what people don't realize is this audio is also mixed by an audio engineer who's fantastic. Like, Not only does the microphone give good raw material, he makes it really, really great. And an audio engineer could take that and make it louder. It'd be easy for them to do.
1: Thankfully, one of my customers is an audio engineer, so he's
0: very kindly volunteered to sort it all out for me. After a quick break, Kieran and I dig into what he said a moment ago, which was during the creation of his course, he stopped creating new social content and repurposed some of his old content. We're going to dig into just exactly how he did that right after this. And now back to my conversation with Kieran Drew. You mentioned a second ago that when you're really in the trenches of building the course, writing the course, you didn't write on Twitter, you just repurpose things. It seems like people who get to a point where they're they want to focus on some bigger project, but they feel like, ah, but I have some momentum. I don't want to lose momentum. I want to do this. So when you did that, talk to me about your process for repurposing your Twitter content for a couple of months. What did that look like?
1: So actually, on my Notion, I have something called a Hall of Fame. Um, basically, when a tweet hits a certain criteria, it gets imported into Notion. So I have this database of you know hundreds, probably about a thousand tweets now. So the actual repurposing bit was pretty straightforward. I personally don't like to just repost stuff, and if I am going to do that, it has to be six months minimum. I know a lot of people say three to four, but I can tell when someone is reposting their stuff every two to three months, and uh, I, I do think that like reputation is something that you should prioritise. But what I will do, mate, is I'll take one tweet and I'll turn it into ten, very very similar, and then you know it's just like a sniper than a shotgun, right? So you have one tweet that hits home, and then you spread the effect. So uh, done that, just, uh, I set aside maybe five hours and I just went through my hall of fame and I just turned it into loads more stuff. And then I took my threads and I just changed the hook, you know, different angle, storytelling angles. If it was already a storytelling angle, turn it into just a, you know, creator tips angle, just stuff like that, man, because I'm very conscious that this whole content game becomes a bit of a trap, right? And there is actually a lot more that you should be doing with the leverage you build down the line. But if you're constantly in that that carousel of content, you just can't do it. So I'm on a, a big push to try and make content as effortless as possible. Because at the end of the day, man, like the product only went so well because I put so much time into it. But by doing that, it's helped me kind of step up that next level. You know, I sort of clawed my way from like having no clue at all some dentists and didn't even know what copyright existed. So... It kind of just—it just goes to show that sometimes it's better to step away, make content as effortless as possible, so you can uh, go big on something else that hopefully boosts your authority and reputation. After,
0: for your hall of fame, is that an automation that runs through Zapier or something? Can you walk us through how that functions?
1: Yeah. So originally it was through Make, fully automated. So I—I um, I didn't build this, by the way. A friend did, and when a tweet got to 300 likes, it would auto-import. I do love data driven growth, but like people can get way too into it, particularly for social. And to me, I just say, look, likes. It's not the perfect metric, but at least it's a good indicator of like people enjoying it. And it would just auto import every day anything that got above 300. The problem is now that that API change happened, it really screwed up the whole plan. So what we're doing now is uh, Blackmagic emails their report, right? And I think you can download that report as an Excel file and then. The rest happens automatically. So I actually don't have that running at the moment. He's just building it for us now.
0: Yeah, Uh, Well, give me his email. I I I, I actually think that you can work around that make thing by making your own personal Twitter app. I mean, I had a similar thing happen with like Tweet 100 was a project I did that's completely dead now because of this Twitter thing. I was doing a similar automation, but it was logging every tweet and tabulating the results of that tweet after 24 hours. And then I would rank by activity, but I also haven't solved the problem since it was broken. <laughs> so when you when you did that five hour session, are you then scheduling those tweets in some other third party software for a week at a time, a month at a time?
1: Yeah. I mean I schedule in hype theory. So uh, I mean at that time I scheduled as far ahead as possible, which was a good couple months. And it was probably it's probably maybe more like six to eight hours when I went back to edit it the next day. Um, but I'm always made I'm a week to two weeks ahead of content. So everything is scheduled because I, for one, I hate that feeling of pressure, right? If I ever have to sit down and think, oh God, I have to do something today, it kind of snaps me out of the flow of executing mm-hmm. on a higher level of contribution. But also, man, I think it's a really cool writing trick, right? If you could just get a couple of weeks ahead, then on a Monday morning for 20 minutes, you know, a little bit hungover, maybe I just read my content for Hype Fury and you I go, on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> man, I drink on a Friday and I'm hungry on a Monday. Man, I'm like 30 going on 60. But uh, that side, that little buffer, just checking on a Monday when you read your content and you post, you scheduled it, you know, two weeks before, you pick up on so many little tricks. And you know, like I can make that sound more elegant or articulate. So I'm a huge fan of this, like content buffer, take the pressure off, so you can think clearly and, and improve your quality.
0: Yeah, we just did. We just did a sprint in the community around this exact point because it also changes your relationship to the content. I I find that if you're ahead, you have less pressure on publishing something. So I find that I'm more aware. I notice different things. The content is more fun and playful. It's coming from a positive energy place If I'm sharing this because I want to not because I have a deadline. So big, big fan of getting ahead. It's hard. But if you if people are listening to this and finding it hard, I recommend just taking two weeks off. Do the same production you would, but just schedule it two weeks from now. And then Absolutely. suddenly some time passes and you're ahead of the curve.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just say tweet a day. You know, how long would that take you to write? Half an hour? Yeah. Tweet a day, just just step back for a bit because again, consistency is a gift and a curse, right? Like yes, you might not get as much engagement for a week or two, but it's so mentally relieving to just think, you know what, this content thing I can do on two days of the week and I've got three days of the week to actually build something with it. So yeah, man, I love it. And congratulations, by the way, the community, I've heard you doing very well now. So I saw your uh, tweet about the uh, revenue.
0: It's It's been transformative for the business, but I've never yeah. had a digital product launch like we're talking about here that you've had, you know, digital products are something that that's what I want to build a business on. And historically, mm-hmm. I haven't done a very good job of that this is my highest month ever we're recording this in the middle of june highest month ever of digital product sales and it's still been a pretty concerted effort i'll say like it hasn't come from just like oh i signed up to the creator science newsletter and i got introduced to a product and i purchased like it's been me intentionally plugging things in places and talking about it but that's the grand experiment for the year is by the end of this year on a monthly basis i want more revenue to be coming from digital products than the membership without decreasing you know, the the top line of the membership.
1: Is that because the membership's been quite time intensive for you?
0: It's because I think that what's that's what builds a more resilient business. And the the style of business you and I are building, I think there should be a direct correlation between audience growth and revenue growth. Like if you grow the audience, it should enter the machine that is the Kieran Drew universe. And that input of new attention should lead to some percentage conversion to new sales. So that The whole game is the more people I get in front of, the more people find my work, they get results, they get an offer to a specific product, they purchase, and that's how the machine works. And right now the machine doesn't work that way for me.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not working too smooth for me either, but it's always a work in progress, right? I do remember saying 12 months ago, I would love a business where the more you write, the more you earn. And so it's just reach, relationships, revenue, right? And just trying to optimize those three things. So yeah, so we're on the same sort of path, I guess, uh.
0: I want to talk a little bit about uh, churn, because yeah. something I hear from creators who are thinking about doing a launch model is they are afraid of turning people off, pissing them off, getting a bunch of churn. During this four-day launch period, did you notice an impact of churn in subscribers or followers that was higher than normal? Uh, a couple of interesting things,
1: actually, mate. I was terrified to market my product the first time around. Uh, but I kind of believe now that you you should only be scared of marketing too much if you haven't provided enough value in the first place. And so when I was doing the emails this time around, what I did was I started building a waiting list in like January. So by the time I actually came to launch May, we had 1,800 people on the waiting list alone. And these people have raised their hands to say, yeah, I'm interested in high impact writing. They know they're being sold to, but people don't mind being sold to when you give them a reason, right? They've been expecting it. I made sure, so my rule for emails, man, is that before I sell, I have to teach. And before I teach, I have to tell a story because then at least that way, if you don't buy, you learn something and you get entertained. So each email was quite fun. And then what I did was for my marketing. So I actually wrote maybe, uh, it was a lot, man. It was like 18 emails, but my whole list only got like three and then my engage list got maybe 10 and then the waiting list got all the rest. So I didn't actually get many complaints that, you know, people, you're sending me too many emails. At the end of the day, you speak to direct response people, right? And they're like, good, let them go. They're not buyers. And I'm not sure I buy into that philosophy entirely because I do feel like people deserve the chance to become a buyer. And that might not be for six to 12 months, but there is that four day thing where it's like, well, look, if you're going to do it, you have to do it right here. In terms of email then, probably stayed about the same so i didn't which means that obviously we, we did churn for a little bit but not like a massive hit and i actually stopped growing my newsletter but um the creator network came through which is brilliant on twitter though man i thought because again i hate selling on social media i was like this is going to be awful but because i'm a big fan of this like building public approach so you know it's like oh shit this isn't going well and then oh cool this is going pretty well and, and then uh, the way that i set it up man is that when you buy the product you get an email from me, you know, just saying, thank you. It's got a picture of me my little sign, which I do in every email. And I just say, look, I really appreciate you buying it. When you take this course, if, if you're enjoying the first module, would you mind just posting a screenshot on Twitter for me so I can get more exposure? And by the end of it, man, I was retweeting every 10 minutes, mm. which is crazy. And long story short, I thought it would destroy my audience growth. It was probably my best week in months. Really? Yeah. And I think it's because People pay attention to someone doing something, right? Yeah. yeah. And of course, number flexes do well, but like when someone says a tweet like, Oh fuck, excuse my language, uh, we sold X amount. Uh <laughs> we sold X amount, I think that helped. But overall, man, like I think I don't know if it's one of those beliefs where it's like, is it actually true? So long as it's not, I'm not being like pushy, like buy my stuff, buy my stuff. Like I'm joking about it. I'm like, people buying this, got this email. Or like one of my emails is like, I got in a, fa- a fight with Danko and Justin Welsh, And like these things were just, it was like a nice way to market. So yeah, I don't think it made that much of a difference, man.
0: I want to talk about things that you think you did really well in this launch and then things that you would do differently if you were to start over again. Let's let's start with the things that you think we we did well. What are those things that people can learn from and say, okay, I'm going to take that into my launch? I just made a mental note of that idea of, hey, if you're enjoying this, take a screenshot, share it on Twitter. I think that's brilliant. What else?
1: Uh, Tension. That was the biggest one, man. Um, Before my other launch, I started marketing it two weeks before. This one, I started marketing it four months before. Every single newsletter, I would make my point in my newsletter, by the way, This is going to be in my new course. And so uh, the way that I got this from Seth Godin, it's it's like a rubber band, right? And the longer you pull it, eventually when you do release, it goes a lot stronger. So like three weeks before the course, every single day I posted two to three screenshots of my best slides. And I'd explain the point. So, you know, like I might say something like, be clear, not clever, but then the tweet would explain why it's important. And then there'd be the natural call to action. So that tension that when I actually came to launch... I didn't really have to push people to persuade. I think the people that were ready to buy were ready to buy. So the tension side, that pre-marketing hype, uh, I think that's really important. I think it's like 80% of the work.
0: Love that. I've I've heard something similar from Chris Williamson on this podcast when he's talking about releasing a podcast.
2: You can build up excitement around something that you're doing as long as the excitement is remotely proportional to what you're going to deliver at the end of it. For the most part, a lot of people, especially people that look to... Uh, yourself and and me and maybe some of the people that are listening that uh, create content, they have this parasocial relationship with you. They're genuinely invested. You are a part of their life. So for me, I've got, toward the back end of this year, I'm about to release four of the biggest guests that I've ever done. So I'm going to start to do a teaser campaign now for all four of them individually, and they're all going to overlap and there'll be countdown timers and people will be like w- wondering who it is. I'm flying out to this place to see, oh no, who lives in that place. Like it's just... Maybe it's a bit lame, right? And some people might not be into that, But genuinely, I think you need to drag out the anticipation, because people want to be invested. Take them along for the journey. This is very much my like club promoter, whatever you want to say, like bias showing through here. But I like doing that. It, I think that hype generated effectively magnifies your, your outcomes, and it is a fun way to connect with the audience and to give them something more than simply what you deliver them in terms of content
1: that nightclub approach, right? I actually heard the podcast and I used to be the kid that that guy was the promoter for, <laughs> you know, the one trying to get in and stuff. So um, genius. Cause he broke, he broke, uh, to his, um, lead magnet, right? He was doing the book one and it, like he couldn't even send that many downloads. So yeah. I'm a huge fan of that approach. What else so, I mentioned about that social proof, um, feedback loop was really good volume. So what I realized this time around was like, like certain percentage, you're going to buy this product. Apart from spending a lot of time on the copy, which um, I spent a long time diving into Direct Response World, which is a bit like Vegas, right? It's like, it's a lot of money, but you feel a bit sleazy after a few days. The volume of exposure, I wrote uh, a thread every single day. we done a spaces, 18 emails, all those pre-launch emails. I just made sure I was everywhere because then we know at least we're going to convert you know, 0.5 to 1%. So that was a big help and that was pretty exhausting, but that's the point, right? It's like game day. Did
0: George, a.k.a. Grammar Hippie, did he help you with the launch of this? I feel, I feel like I saw a tweet somewhere in there that you guys collaborated in some way.
1: So George just helped with affiliating, mm. uh, which is really nice of him. So I actually went and just learned this from a few courses and uh, George has been quite kind to like tell me what I'm doing wrong. And anyway, I sent him an email being like, would you mind affiliating for the launch? And it's quite funny, man, because he asked me how the first day went and I was like, it's not gone as well as I thought. And he was like, well, how many emails have you sent? I was like, three. And he was in George fashion. I won't say the actual thing, but there were some swear words. And it was like, I'm sending more emails for your launch than you are. That's embarrassing. And so uh, from there, it just became a bit of a game of like, he sent maybe four or five emails a day for me. Um, I think he's happy to say, I think he grossed maybe um, 16K or maybe like f- uh, 14K, I think. I uh, had like 18K rule for the affiliate. And so that's how he helped out. And it's been quite cool, man, because I saw maybe four or five more Uh, people for the affiliate team because one thing i noticed in the email copy world these guys all work together right every launch you hear about it from everyone but on twitter it doesn't really seem to be happening like in the creator network so much and i said the same to you i was like look if you've got something to sell that's not too similar to mine i love your stuff and uh, i mean there's a really cool way to set up some win-wins around there so we're affiliating for each other's launches from now on really
0: I feel like it was a very common practice in like the early creator days when the word wasn't even creator. It was just like online marketing. Very, very common. That's actually how I found out about a lot of creators is through their affiliates of this thing. I've never done it very successfully either. I mean, outside of like members of the community can promote the community and that's been impactful for the community itself. But I haven't done like an affiliate launch strategy before. And I don't know if it's something that needs to be re- learned and re-embraced by the creator community or if like the attitude has changed and people aren't as open to that i'm not i'm not entirely sure but it was very very common in the earlier internet marketing days after another short break i talked to kieran about what he would do differently if he were relaunching high impact writing today so stick around we'll be right back now please enjoy the rest of my conversation with kieran drew well, let's talk about the things that you would do differently if you were to relaunch this course, go back in time and start over again. What would you do differently about launching high-impact writing?
1: Sometimes I'm a bit hesitant to answer that question, man, because it's always like cause and effect, right? Where you say you would do something different, but you don't actually know how that would impact later on. So and like I, it kind of went as best as I, I thought it could go. Some stuff that I wish I'd done a bit better would probably be on the building side. I do feel like it could have been more succinct and that's just time, right? Like the more you trim something, the the more concise it's going to be. Actually, man, you know what I would do differently is just give myself a fucking break. (laughs) Sorry about the language. Say more. Like It's just crazy the amount of pressure you can put on yourself, right? I thought about the launch for ages, but I wasn't actually taking action to do it. The, The problem is like expecting results sort of takes away the enjoyment of it, right? Particularly in the internet world, like your your numbers get so warped, man. Like when I made like my first four or five K month, I felt like a king. And then it's like only a year later, but you're like, oh my God, if you don't make X amount of money, you're a failure. And so it's a constant reminder to just be like, you know what, cliche as it sounds, enjoy the process. Like, as long as you know you've put in as much work as possible, the outcome is is whatever, man. Cause at the end of the day, even if it didn't do so well. Now you have a reason to work out why and you go again and you improve. So I'm trying to like bring that attitude to the next thing where it's look at the positive side of it and just take that growth mindset uh, every time. So maybe just giving yourself a bit of a break, yeah.
0: When you think about the the future, is the next stage of this to relaunch high-impact writing and, and do it again? Is it creating high-impact writing volume two? So, and you could probably relate to this a lot, man, um, it's quite hard to
1: keep your uh, values in mind when this like fame and fortune starts rolling in a bit. And a lot of people reached out, particularly in this direct response world, where they were like, dude, let's go. Cohorts, high tickets, like this is the time, hit seven figures, whatever. And it got pretty appealing, man. And, and But actually, one thing that I'm a huge fan of is it's not kind of how much money we can make now, but how much freedom we can build later, right? The leverage game. So I could just keep relaunching this. And I know that that would go very well. I don't like push marketing, I'm much more fun than pull marketing. So we're relaunching in about three weeks, then it goes evergreen. So welcome sequence, because then I know the more I write, the more I earn, even if it takes two to three years to get that sort of sales that you could do in a year. And what I'm thinking there, mate, is to try gamify it a bit. We're just going to say, okay, let's sell X amount of high impact writing. And how can we achieve that? And the the method that I'm leaning towards is to begin to build a kind of product repertoire for the people that are bought, you know, um, solving specific problems, how to hire a VA, how to write a welcome signal, whatever I think I'm okay enough to teach. Uh, and then using those products as a reason to incentivize other people to buy every couple of months. Because one thing I've said from now on is no more discount selling. Mm. So it's actually, I think that's going to take me, what, three to five years to, to build that sort of eight product, high impact writing combo. So aside from that, mate, that's the plan. And then the rest is just focusing on systems. Like, I don't know if you do this too, man, but like you finish one thing and then you dive into the next and you're like, you didn't really smoothen out the system in the first place. And so I'm just trying to go slow uh, and make sure everything is done right as we go through it.
0: Yeah, I relate to that. There's there's a book called Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. Have you read that book? I haven't, no. I think it's one of the best books that I hear nobody talking about ever, especially in the the creator space. Uh, hitmakers hit hit, by Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. And it, it was written in, I believe, 2017. And the idea was: what is the science of popularity? Why are things popular? And it's so well written to talk about why certain things are popular. Uh, the book starts with the story of the impressionist painters, who are the best known impressionist painters in the world. And the question is, well, how did how did these I think five painters get to be known as the impressionists from that era and not to spoil the, the, the story or anything, but it came down to exposure. Like they just had more exposure earlier on, which self-perpetuated. And over time, they just became the only ones that mattered. Exposure um,
1: to other people or exposure yeah, to Yeah. The it's like they were the matter.
0: ones, like when impressionism came up, They were the people that were talked about because they were the first impressionist painters that were placed in a gallery to talk about impressionist painting. So over time, they just kind of compounded an advantage of these are the people that come up when you're talking about impressionism and that got printed into textbooks. So it's now taught. So, you know, it just perpetuated and perpetuated, but there's a chapter in that book where he talks about the difference between fashion and tradition. And he says, fashion, comes and goes cyclically it gets really hot really fast and then fades out tradition is something that is perpetual ongoing has no like up and down cycle and the question I think about a lot with creators today is we see a lot of fashion creators like we see people that come really quickly and just like blow the doors off and and then get kind of stale pretty quickly too and i've always mm-hmm. thought about my own creator business like how do i make this so it's not a fashion but it is enduring it's sustaining it's different it's not something that just mm-hmm. like peaks really quickly and then fades because there wasn't a whole lot of there there but is a slow build and maybe that's a story i tell myself to to hide from playing bigger and to keep playing small but it's something that i think about a lot it's interesting you say
1: that because it's it's basically all that's on my mind
0: is the, the
1: opportunity cost of your approach right and it's funny you say that you're hiding with your thing but again i think about your method a lot where it's like this commitment to quality which does stop you from churning out you know like you're not here writing two to three threads a week and, and all that sort of stuff but i think a lot of people that um i mean for me like it took me 12 months to hit a thousand followers and so there has been that long grind but now it's this whole like you get stuck in one approach when there might be a smarter game to play. And uh, maybe along this Hitmakers thing, have you heard of Michael Simmons, the writer?
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So here's the thing about blockbuster articles, right? Uh, and there's a famous post where he's there going, you know what, the long tail, fat head thing. That focus on quality is actually what is the, the thing that's going to get you the most results long term. But it's kind of hard to do that when everyone else is is playing one game. So you're not really going to stay above the crowd by copying them, right?
0: Yeah. The other thing is, you know, as I was sharing our business model, I believe again that you should build a machine so that the more people come into your world, there's a direct correlation to uh, business growth, we'll call it. It doesn't have to be revenue, but we'll call it business growth. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that machine built, getting in front of everybody that you can get in front of, and that's hyperbole, but getting in front of a ton of people before the machine is ready, I don't think necessarily serves you like to me i would prefer to have some inflection point giant growth when i feel very confident uh, and have seen evidence that x percent of people who enter this world choose to become a part of this course or this academy or this membership or whatever it is because otherwise they show up to the party and they're like what do we do at this party And you have to be like, well, let me entertain you at this party for a year before I can tell you what to do at this party, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we've covered a lot of ground here, Kieran. I'm trying to think of any other questions I didn't ask that you think I should. Is there anything about the launch that you think we should talk about that we haven't already touched on?
1: I guess one point that I've echoed to a few people that have asked is when they said, you know, how did you do this this six-figure launch was... It's because i have done it before, right? With the first product. And people kind of don't appreciate that where it's like, look, you're looking at a six-figure launch, but you haven't launched the first one. And I remember when I, before I monetized, right? I used to think constantly about how I was going to make money online, how I was going to build my business. It was quite stressful. And then when you actually look at like the latex of it, it's like you haven't built something to sell. And so what I say to people is like, yes, absolutely. If you're going to build a product, give it your all, like study the copies, study the marketing, build it well. But I'm a huge fan of that whole like prototype approach, right? Like let's um, like what Jack Butcher says, let's get going, then get good. And then when you come to do the next one, like get it good, then get going. So it's kind of like a full circle thing. So um, I just say to people, like don't overthink it because I decided to take on a writing course, which by the way, like <laughs> teaching you how to write, like, there's so much stuff. And so I say to be like specific problem, specific person, much clearer defined outcome, which I know you're a fan of, right? Where you need that quantifiable and outcome. And just don't overcomplicate it, right? Because even if you're not a big name, that specificity creates authority. So long as you can be the solution for someone. So mine was for, um, the original one was for early writers who struggled with writer's block. And I built a swipe file. And I gave it a fancy unique mechanism. And We can talk about unique mechanisms as well, actually, if you would like. But um, so yeah, just really like build something. And I guarantee you when you do the next one in a year, uh, it'll
0: go better. Yeah, say more about that. What do you mean by unique mechanism?
1: Sure. So we have like the levels of awareness and market sophistication, right? And what I mean by that is people generally have heard it all before. And so a a lot of creators I speak to, they trip up because they're like, oh, I can't find a new problem to solve. And you don't really need a new problem. You just need to offer a new perspective, a way that people can see what you're saying. And so if I was jumping into like AI uh, a year ago, you don't need a unique mechanism. You just need to say, buy my AI stuff. Rob Lennon is a great example of that. He tore it up because he had the authority and he built an AI course. Most of us, however, are in this like level four awareness where you've got competition and people need to believe it's going to help them. And a good way to do that is to identify this like unique mechanism where you can say, this is my way of doing it. My like system, for example. So um, my first product, I called it the looking glass technique. And I'd have a module where I would take tweet from one person, we would extract the message, and then we would apply our unique lens. Swipe file, right? <laughs> Very pretty way to say this is a swipe file. Uh, this one is high impact writing system. And so it's like, a, yeah, we frame it as a system, we say it's step one, step two, step three, next all. And by doing that, when people read it, they're like, this sounds pretty cool, uh, as opposed to being like, oh great, another writing course. So yeah, unique, unique mechanism, really useful if you want to like, make a product stand out a bit, particularly if you don't have that authority or expertise.
0: Something that I realized you didn't do, or at least I don't think you did in your launch, was to pre-sell the course. Did you consider that?
1: I did, man. Uh, I'll be honest, maybe a little bit of um, fear. You know, pre-selling is like, what if they don't buy? Which I know is silly, and that's the point. Uh, but, you know, yeah, there, there was that. And also, there was just so much to do. Like, I mean, I, I sort of made the decision early. Sorry, you okay. go.
0: Well, you, you basically pre-sold it without giving people a buy button, right? You're talking about how you, yeah. you, you, you talked about it for three to yep. four months ahead of time. So maybe they yep. made the mental decision that they were buying in during the pre-sell period. And that is what helped the anticipation in the end.
1: Do you think there's, I know it's hard to quantify, but like that opportunity cost. Then the people that you pre-sell would have bought it at full price anyway, um, or
0: vice versa? Very possibly. For sure. I mean, I think a lot of people come into this and the idea of pre-selling is really smart because it validates an idea and it also de-risks the production time. In your case, it's very possible that you validated this through just talking about it and, and having an emails for three to four months. And uh, as far as de-risking, if you were already earning enough money to live at the time, and you have conviction. This, this is the thing that I tell people who are like, well, what happens if I pre-sell this and it doesn't hit the threshold that I want? To me, it's a question of conviction. Like, is this the product that you really want to build equity in? And you know your target audience is going to want and enjoy and get something out of. Uh, because mm-hmm. a lot of people, they're just early and they, they haven't built much of an audience. So there aren't going to be a lot of people to purchase it. But if you do know your audience, you understand the people who are already there. And this is something that can and will help them. I think you can invest the time into building something early, but you should just understand the the opportunity cost of of doing so.
1: Sure. And I guess actually one thing I did do is beta coaching. So that is kind of a pre-sale, right? So I guess even six months before, so September, I launched it as a group coaching program. High ticket, and I sold that before I built it, and that was crazy, man. Like that was um 3k ahead. I wrote it on a Google doc sheet sent it out to my email list. And I, again, click send. What the hell have I done? <laughs> no one's going to buy this. And we ended up having to turn away quite a few people. And it was my first 20 K month on that one. And it was actually very useful to a sell them build because, uh, like, you know, like you don't want to disappear for six months and no one buys your shit. But secondly, I thought my systems were good until I tried to teach them to people. <laughs> Like, I just, I I was like, oh, this is shit hot. Like I'm dialed in. And then I talked it to these six guys and then, you know, like two months later, I'm like, well, why aren't you doing what I said here? And why aren't you doing this? And um, a lot of people skip that beta coaching period, right? But you don't really build a good product on paper. You build it with people. So um, I guess that was kind of my pre-validation phase as well, but it really helped, man, because the, the coaching was dramatically different to the product. Mm-hmm. The core stayed in and it was really, really advantageous to say to them at the end, I just went, yeah, what was the best bit? Like, What three things stuck out to you? What was the most confusing part? Like, and I was very honest at the start. Um, I sold it as like, you get this half price, but we're building it together. I'm not there going on, oh, this is my first group coaching and I'm terrified, which I was and it was. But I just said, like, look, the reason why you get this for this price and this much exposure is because you're here to build this with me. And so from day one, I was like, no ego here, tell me how shit I am. And it was really useful because at the end, long list of feedback saying, this was great, this wasn't clear enough. I could see when they hadn't executed on certain things, so I could be like, that's really missed the mark. That's like a me system, not a you system. And so it was quite easy to package that up for the full product.
0: Yeah, I I think doing live teaching, whether it's coaching individually, group coaching, cohort-based course, it's a great step in a product development process for exactly all the reasons you just mentioned. You you learn so much about what is resonating, what needs to be more clear, what's missing. And if you if you don't take that step of testing the curriculum live with other people, you're going to get that same feedback, uh, hopefully. But now you have to reproduce something. And a lot of times you actually don't get that feedback. Actually, there's not a closing of the loop. People just get stuck or they lose faith and they quit going through the material they don't get an outcome there's no positive word of mouth it's like the opposite of of a good flywheel
1: yeah I, I love the whole flywheel concept I'm not very good at it but one thing that I liked was that with the tiered pricing model your, your product creates the next problem right I find that so fascinating that you know your customer journey and they don't actually and so uh, what I did for my first product mate was the similar thing it was you buy the product and for an extra $200 you can book a call with me And I ended up maybe doing 60 one-on-one calls over the year. It was just everything I needed for what was next, what we're struggling on, uh, the copy, people just telling you what they need. And so I've done the exact same here, right? It's like, you buy this course, there's an upsell if you want to help with the next thing. And I'm just going to listen now for three to six months and be like, well, what is it that they're telling me after the product that I can build? And so that's been quite a cool feedback loop too.
0: I hope people are hearing that as well because I've had a lot of success with that in my courses, which is simply adding a second tier of pricing that says, this is the course plus a one-on-one call with me. You can basically mark it up to your hourly rate. And it's been awesome, to your point.
1: yeah. I mean, one thing I I was trying to move away from is selling my time. But actually, you're kind of getting paid for market research for that, Mm -hmm. right? And I do feel like, you you mentioned about some creators sort of phasing out. I, I feel like people lose contact with their audience the bigger they get. And which is, you know, it's understandable you've got so much leverage, but uh, I'd like to think one over the next few years, one thing I do try to keep up on is just that one-on-one contact with new customers where you remember what it's like, what they're struggling with. Because I forget now, like that first day posting on Twitter, like, it's really hard to remember that feeling. And then I had a call with a guy last week and he was like, I don't get it. I've taken your course and I, I, I don't get it. And it's like, oh yeah, because of all of these things that you're worried about. You need to kind of empathize that so i do think it's important that particularly if you're a content creator you need to keep in touch right or else you're just talking to yourself and you've lost track of that
0: if you enjoyed this conversation with kieran you can find him on twitter at it's kieran drew you can also visit his website kieran to sign up for his newsletter digital freedom links to both of those things of course are in the show notes Big thanks to Kieran for being on the show. Thank you to Nathan Townhunter for mixing the show. Thank you to Brian Skeel for creating our music. And thank you to my sister, Emily Klaus, for creating the artwork for this episode. Thank you for listening to this show. And if you enjoyed it, tweet at me. Let me know at jklaus. Find me there. Or if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We just crossed 350 reviews on Apple Podcasts. I would love to get to 200 on Spotify. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week.